So, it's been announced that the new film, Prey, coming from Dan Trachenberg, the guy behind 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is the latest entry in the Predator franchise, is coming with a Comanche language track for the entire film. Now, of course, the film was not shot in that language, um, but the story is based around a Comanche tribe and their dealings with the Predator uh, hundreds of years before, you know, the modern events of a lot of the more common Predator movies. Now, this is fucking awesome because it's going to have some authenticity to the film which this series could definitely use in certain aspects of it i think it's going to bring different eyes to the predator franchise than we've ever had on it before and i think that's cool as hell and you really need to think about it because we're only a couple months away from it now you really need to think about it whether you're actually going to be watching this movie with the english language track because honestly I'm not thinking it's going to be that necessary. This movie was already going to be so badass. And the fact that now we have an option to listen to the entire thing in Comanche and like you're going to choose to not do that. Nah, fuck that, guys. When Prey comes out, we're pledging it right now. We're only doing the Comanche language track and subtitles. Let's get it. <laughs> All right, y'all. Tonight we are talking Dash Cam and Stephen King's Rose Red tonight on... T watches a scary movie. Welcome to another brand new episode of T Watches a Scary Movie. I, of course, am T, if you cannot tell by my nice, fancy blockbuster video uh, <laughs> name tag that I've had now for, God, 15 years at this point, I think is when I worked at Blockbuster. Ah, what a good time. I was a, uh, I was a shift leader who essentially became assistant manager there. But I digress. Yes, I am T. We're talking scary movies, and I appreciate y'all tuning in for another brand new episode. Remember, new episodes go up every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time if you're watching the video version here on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. Again, that's youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. And if you're listening to the audio-only version, I appreciate you tuning in. We're available on all your favorite podcasting platforms spotify podbean audible check us out wherever you can find your podcast just search t watches a scary movie and of course follow me on my socials i'm most active on twitter that's where i get to have my fun fun horror conversations with all of you so follow me on uh on twitter axdew yes that's axdew i know a bunch of random characters there but that's me on twitter you can also find me on instagram not as active there lately but theron underscore reynolds and of course find our facebook group which is facebook.com slash group slash t scary movie again that's facebook.com slash group slash t scary movie if you go to our facebook group Group. You can check out and see what we're doing on our watch parties. Yeah, we do watch parties every Wednesday night. Uh, we do a little before. And we definitely do it after the show. Uh, for example, this week we are watching Stephen King's Rose Red, the entire miniseries. So if you want to watch along with us, make sure you get to the Facebook group. You can get the link to the Discord. It's also right over there as well, too. And come and watch. Uh, we're going to be starting at about 9 p.m. Mountain Standard Time uh, tonight if you're watching this on Wednesday. So what do we have to talk about this week? There's been some news. 
news. And I know uh, I just got done last week telling y'all about my favorite five films of the year so far. Uh, the collection of new horror this year, my 365 Days of Horror has been going splendidly. I just got done watching Alligator for the first time last night, which man, Robert Forster, that dude has always been cold, man. Love him, love him over his long, long, long Hollywood career. But y'all know me, Jackie Brown's always been one of my favorites and it's been really, really cool. Kind of get him to look the exact same, the exact same 30 years prior in Alligator uh, as he is in Jackie Brown. Really fucking cool. Uh, got to watch that. And there's a lot more new stuff coming out that I'm excited to watch too. Uh, we got Nope coming in a few weeks. We got The Black Phone coming in a few weeks. We got Prey coming in a few weeks. There's so much good horror that's coming out and there's so much more horror that I get to talk to you all about as well too. But let's talk some news first here. We're gonna do this rapid fire style. So we found out officially Neb Campbell is not returning for Scream 6, Ghostface takes Manhattan. Yeah, so it was revealed officially that uh, Scream 6 will take place in New York. Right now, we know that our surviving crew, our surviving cast members from Scream 5 are returning. Jenna Ortega, Melissa Barrera, uh, Jasmine, uh, uh, Jasmine Savoy, um, and Mason Gooding are all coming back uh, for Scream 6. And so is Courtney Cox as Gail, uh, Gail Weathers. And so is Hayden Panettiere as Kirby Reed. But... The one thing we have not heard about in the last few months at all that was kind of suspicious, and we did talk about it a little bit, is that Nev Campbell had not signed on. And it does seem weird, no shade at all to Courtney Cox, that we're going to announce that Gail Weathers is back before Sidney Prescott is back. Now, I don't know if that's the same way of what happened like Scream 4 or Scream 5 with announcing like Dewey and Gail being back in the films as well, but... It seemed a little weird that we weren't announcing her back because you would think she'd be like kind of the anchor, even if she's not the main character, because Sydney Prescott was not the main character of Scream 5. The story didn't really have that much to do with her, honestly. And the thing is, is that it was very clear at the end of Scream 5 that we could just focus on these new characters moving forward, and we don't really have to go back to tell more stories about Sydney or Gail or even Dewey at that point. Uh, if anything, spoilers, it actually makes a little bit more sense that we might actually get more stuff on Billy and Stu, because we have the introduction of Billy's ghost or, you know, visions of Billy, um from Melissa Barrera's character seeing visions of her dead father. And so it was kind of more interesting to think of the fact we could see Billy make a return again, or even Stu pop up this time, or other killers make appearances, as opposed to seeing more of Sydney, just because that story has kind of ran its course. And now it's being officially reported that uh, Neff Campbell was given a very low ball offer. Some, something wouldn't like equate to the respect she deserves after being involved in this series for almost 30 years at this point. 30 years we're coming up on that. And I know we're still five, like, you know, three, three years away, three, four years away from Scream 1's 30th anniversary. But that's insane to think. It's been almost 30 years and she can't get the pay that she rightfully deserves. And here's the deal. We're not taking sides here on this because it's possible to support both sides. I support Nev Campbell not coming back because she's not getting paid, which she absolutely deserves for being in this series. And every single one since the original, it's one of, if not the only horror franchise that has not done a reboot, has not uh, taken out these legacy characters at all. The continuity has stayed the same. Uh, Child's Play is one of the only other ones that has done that, and we've seen actors come back and get the screen time and presence they deserve in that. Thank you, Don Mancini, for that, by the way. Uh, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen with Nev Campbell. And now here's the thing. 
It's not Radio Silence's fault. They wrote a script. They direct the movie. They don't make those kind of decisions about who gets paid what. So we got to back off of Radio Silence and blaming them for this because it really falls on Spyglass and Paramount in this case. Now, give Nev Campbell her money so we can see her come back in Screen 7 and finally close off that chapter of this franchise. That being said, the film being set in New York is going to be fucking awesome. Um, right now, all of us, I'm sure, are assuming it's going to be more based around Gail Weathers and this might be her swan song because as we know from screen five gail weathers is working as a tv reporter in new york which we have to assume ghostface is going to be infiltrating miss weathers's new studio so we'll see but excited about the developments of scream six uh this has the potential to make this the most diverse uh the, the diverse option of the series so far because keep in mind even though Scream 2 and Scream 3 were not set in Woodsboro, we were still dealing with legacy characters all being the focus of everything. Scream 6 is really going to be the first, uh, first one that's coming out here to where it's based around these new characters. And, you know, the presence of our legacy characters is very light. Very, very light. So I'm very, very interested to see what route that's going to take, uh, take when we get Scream 6 next year. Okay. And that's it. That's all we're talking news-wise tonight. So we're going to jump right into it. And I want to get into discussing Rob Savage's, Jed Shepard, and Jimma Hartley's dash cam. Now, uh, this is the same team that brought us the magnificent 2020 horror flick host. Y'all might remember that one. Um, Just an absolute banger about a group of friends who decided to host a seance over a Zoom call at the height of the, or at least the start of the pandemic and shenanigans ensue and it doesn't turn out well for anybody. Um, It was, uh, calling it a short film is unfair because that's just the term, you know, we're going to use because it is technically a short movie, but it's not really a short film though. Uh, It's about an hour, hour five long or so. And the, that, that team told such a great story that was truly terrifying. And it takes a lot to scare me. I get grossed out easily. I have no, no qualms with that. But it takes a lot to scare me these days. And the host freaked the fuck out of me when I saw that. So you put the same team together and make another movie, of course, I'm automatically in. And that's where we get Dash Cam. Now, they kind of went for if it ain't broke, don't fix it and i love that approach to it at least that's my assumption of it here because again this is another story that's set during the pandemic probably during like the earlier part of the pandemic as some of the clues of our uh, that our characters give over the course of the film kind of alludes that it's probably still towards the start um and we are following annie annie who runs a popular show online to where uh she basically makes up beats and then raps over these beats over the course of her just driving around in her everyday uh, everyday life. Now, it's pandemic living right now, so there's not that uh, too many people out. And Annie's decided she's going to make a trip over to the UK to go visit her friend, uh, go for, visit her friend Stretch to uh, catch up on old times. Old friend of hers that used to, uh, uh, that they used to make the show together and make all these beats and raps. And very quickly, I think that, uh, I, I think that uh, Jimma, Rob, and Jed, catch us off guard with the introduction to Annie because we very much can see the viewpoints that Annie has. And now here's the thing. Um, 
did not, I tried to go into this movie blind, knew it was a found footage film, and knowing it's from this team, knew it was going to be fucked up. But I tried to go into this film blind, so I didn't know a lot about the characters of the story going into it. And Annie Hardy is very much a right-wing personality. You know, she doesn't believe in COVID, believe it's population control, believe it's a mass or indoctrinating people. Um, you know, she's very much the MAGA, uh, make America great again, all that, all those things. And it's a very interesting choice because when you think about it, especially in a horror film, most of the time we want to kind of identify with our protagonists because it makes it easier for us to get afraid when they're in danger. When shit's happening to them, it's easier to sympathize because we can see ourselves in them. So at least for a certain amount of us, like seeing who Annie is and the way she's presented on screen, that's already catching us off guard and making the very off-putting because I think it allows and it pushes a lot of us to think from the jump, all right, I don't care what happens to this woman. Uh, from, the, from, the, from the go here, she's gonna have the worst shit imaginable happen and I'm not gonna care. And now look, uh, this is, especially in the last three years, I fully, fully understand that we're in such a fucked up world and it's hard to really look at a work of art and separate the two. Um, and I, I've had my issues with it as well too, but horror is one of those things where I, I try to uh, try to, to separate one from the other because I really do love it. I know I'm moving the goalposts a little bit, but the simple truth of the matter is, is like, yeah, like looking at Annie and the way that she's presented in like the in a good chunk of this film, it is hard to sympathize with her. And I did go into this movie thinking very much like I won't care if this woman gets torn apart by the end of the movie because of all the shit she's having, like she's doing. And I think this is actually a very direct and purposeful choice by our filmmakers because Annie does do some deplorable shit and some reprehensible shit to her friend, to her bet, like one of her best friends. She fucks with his job, fucks with his relationship, fucks with his like possessions. Like she's literally like his good friend and she's still putting him through all of this shit. And I think that's very much on purpose because as things progressively get worse for Annie and eventually for Stretch, we're forced to kind of like reevaluate and decide where do we get sympathy for these characters? Where do we actually start feeling bad for these characters and feel that they deserve just a little, just a little relief from their circumstances? And things get going quick. Uh, after a big blow up fight between Annie and uh, her friend Stretch and Stretch's girl, um, uh, who uh, uh, y'all might recognize from Host as well. Um, uh, uh, Jim Moore coming back to play a, a new role in this, which is cool to see her back in here for this as well. Uh, but things take a dark turn very quick as Annie steals her friend Stretch's car, and while she goes to make an Uber, uh, DoorDash, you know, whatever kind of food delivery for him, is tasked with the job of delivering a woman named Angela to an undisclosed location. And after uh, having some difficulties with Angela in her car, in you know, Stretch's car, uh, Annie soon finds out she's being hunted by somebody who very, very much wants Angela back for some very nefarious reasons. And from there, the film just gets batshit insane. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because I compare it to like booking like an Uber ride or a Lyft ride to where, you know, if you're like really concerned, you're going to look at things like ratings, you're looking at the path that you're going, you're looking at costs. And sometimes those rides can be fantastic. And sometimes they're uncomfortable and you're nauseous and you're feeling like unfettered, like you're, you're feeling all weird in the car, but you still make it at the end of the trip. And that's how I felt about Dashcam, that this movie made me so uncomfortable from the jump of it with the way that Annie was and the way that she 
treats her, even her friends. And now the bit of compassion she's trying to show this random woman, Angela, that when shit starts getting insane, and Annie and eventually Stretcher just put into these worse and worse situations. How do they, uh, like, how are they able to push back against that? How are they able, uh, how are we able to reconcile as the audience that, you know, we might not want to see these bad things continuing happen happening to Annie? And I think bringing Stretch back really helps with that as well because we don't want to see anything happen to Stretch. Stretch is cool as fuck. We love Stretch to death. But we can't ignore the fact that Annie's such a shit friend to him. And as things get worse and worse for the two, and the situation just goes insane. And it does go insane. Um, uh, without, I don't want to give away any kind of like direct spoilers here because this is definitely a movie that you have to kind of experience it for the first time just the way it is to really like immerse yourself in it. And I do feel that like me, you'll probably come in with a completely different idea of where this film is going and where the terror is coming from. And when you eventually get to it, it's just going to be such a welcome wash in the movie. Because I do know that once we started to get an idea of what was really at play here and who the villain, uh, who the villain or villains are in this movie, there's this point towards the end of the film, because it's not long. Uh, it says 78 minutes long. It's not 78 minutes long. I think it's like an hour, five, hour, six, which, yeah, I guess that's like 10 minutes. Sure, whatever. Look, I'm not here to do math. Uh, but there's this moment to where Annie's kind of escaped, like, everything that's going on. And she ends up in this, in, in this house. And there's a stark realization Annie gets uh, the moment she has just that second to breathe in this house that I love. I thought it was one of the, like, maybe not necessarily a, a, like a jump scare, but one of the best reveals I had seen in a while. I had so much fun watching Annie just kind of lose her shit. And again, I think that's, that, that's what makes this movie so enjoyable is that even Annie being who she is and the stuff that we present in this film, we still want her to make it through this. Like nobody deserves the e evil shit like that. And I know in our in our real lives in the real world, you know there are people like Annie out there who you know wouldn't spit in our mouth if we were dying on dying of thirst. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to like wish that all these bad things happen. Because how do we get better if that's the things we're hoping for? There, they can be shitty people. They can be full of shit, which there are a lot. A lot of people are like that. Doesn't mean I want to see them die horrifically or anything, you know. And it's the same with Annie. And I love that that this film actually kind of presents that idea to you that all right, how much is too much before you have to start showing a little compassion for everybody else? And that's really the way it is with Annie too. Is that Annie is presented very much as somebody who doesn't have compassion who doesn't really think about these things how it affects others and she's forced to by the end of this movie now it's gonna split it i know ratings right now are all over the place of this movie i know that opinion of this film is definitely gonna be right down the middle and there's gonna be a lot of people who just can't get past annie and the way she's presented and really really enjoy the film and that's thanks because it is a really really enjoyable piece but i do understand the idea that Sometimes it's just too much and you can't get down with that. But either way, Dashcam is available uh, for rental right now on streaming platforms. Check it out on Prime Video. Check it out on Vudu as well. Movies Anywhere. Rent it where you can. It's a good film, a good follow-up to host as well too. Uh, and you'll find yourself needing a, a palate cleanser, uh, cleanser for sure. Because this uh, does get into the gory realm with a few of the different kills and injuries that happen into it. So, viewer beware. That's Dashcam. Next up, 
we are talking Stephen King's Rose Red. Now, uh, it was brought to me earlier this year that uh, a lot of you that watch the show really wanted me to take on more Stephen King stuff on here because I don't really do a lot of Stephen King. I like Stephen King quite a bit. Um, we followed the new Stan miniseries on Prime Video, which was not good, but we followed that episode by episode. And I try to keep you all in the loop, but that was a struggle to get through that series. Um, we like we watched Doctor Sleep at one point, even though we didn't review it, and that's been about it. We've kind of steered clear of a lot of Stephen King just because, honestly, he has more bad adaptations than he has good ones. And that's not a knock on Stephen King himself, because Stephen King has some fantastic stories out there. But that doesn't change the fact, though, that a lot of his adaptations just don't turn out that well. So revisiting a miniseries I had not seen since it came out didn't seem too appealing but natalie this one is specifically for you because i know you really wanted us to look at this uh helena i think you also really wanted me to look at this one as well too so there we have it now the funny thing about rose red if you've never seen it before even if you've never heard of it before is that the best uh, resemblance or the best idea of the story i can give you is that it's stephen king's version of the haunting of hill house or a little bit more accurately it's stephen king's version of the haunting now if you've seen The Haunting, which is what I specifically want to talk about, not The Haunting of Hill House, which is a fantastic story. Mike Flanagan gave us the awesome Netflix miniseries there, but that's more faithful to the original story. The Haunting, the film that starred Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, uh, uh, Owen Wilson, uh, Lily, Lily Taylor, um, was about this doc, uh, this psychiatrist who gets together a group of people who all have some kind of psychic ability to them to take them to uh, this manner, basically, to where uh, there's reportedly it's haunted and all these things go on and people don't return from it and trying to basically measure psychic ability. Now, of course, we find out that one of the people who the doctor has brought in has an actual familiar relationship to the house that they're staying at. And as the hauntings truly do begin, we find out what the real evil at play is. And that's the story of the haunting. And funny enough, that's also the story here of Rose Red that uh, Dr. Joyce Reardon, who is a psychology pro uh, professor at a university in Seattle, is somebody who uh, leads a team of psychics. She's very much interested in the psychic realm of psychology. And there's a manor in Seattle known as Rose Red, and she wants to use to show proof uh, uh was it a uh, paranormal uh paranormal pan uh phenomenon basically showing that the existence of ghosts and hauntings and psychic energy things like that are real and she decides she's going to put together a team of people with psychic abilities to see if they can trigger some of this proof at rose red now rose red itself was uh was set to be built as this big house it was a gift from uh this man john rimbauer to his wife ellen and they used much of their wealth to basically put it all together and the idea was is that it would just be this lavish place for them to live to where they could live in squalor but we find out that john had his own secrets to hide and unfortunately that ran him afoul of a number of people in seattle at the time that john had to have a reckoning with now that's our past day story in the present day joyce reardon again has assembled this team of psychics and people with psychic powers to join her to find out 
everything to do with Rose Red. Uh, she has a descendant of the Rimbauer family, Steven, played by Matt Kiesler, who you might know from Scream 3. She brings on uh, Rachel and Annie Whedon, um, who is a young girl with telekinetic powers who may have uh, more of a connection to Rose Red than anybody knows about as well, too. There is uh, Nick Hardaway, who's a telepathic, played by Julian Sands from Rachnophobia. There's actually a really, really good cast in this. Jimmy Simpson's in it. Melanie Linsky's in it. Kimberly J. Brown's in it. We actually have a really, really great cast in this. Um, not to mention that, of course, uh, Nancy Travis is our lead, uh, lead here playing Dr. Joyce Reardon. And uh, one of the things that I really, really couldn't stop thinking of as I watched this for only the second time in 20 years was Books of Blood. If you might have seen Clive Barker's Books of Blood, they made two adaptations of it about this young man who claims to be clairvoyant and can talk to the dead and eventually ends up in this house where the dead use his body to write their stories. And about this doctor that he's in a relationship with who basically abuses that for her own fame. And that was kind of the idea here of Rose Red to where, you know, Dr. Joyce and Stephen Rimbauer in this relationship, you know, there's interest for sure on Stephen's side, but we can see on Joyce's side that this might just be a case of her using him to further her own needs and her own wants. And from the jump, it makes us hard to really fall on Joyce's side. And I love that about this adaptation as well is that um, while Joyce is presented as our lead character earlier on, like in the first part of the miniseries, as we shift to parts two and parts three, we start to realize that she's not really our main character. We really are focused on these groups of psychics that Joyce has brought with her to Rose Red. Um, you know, Stephen, we spend probably the, the most time with because he has the biggest connection, obviously, to this house and all the evil shit that has happened within it. But also following Annie, who has this big connection uh, to the house as well. And um, I really enjoyed the fact that in parts two and parts three, we got to explore these other characters and their own thoughts, you know, whether they're all altruistic and they actually have good intentions for what they're going to use their powers for and what this house could potentially give them, or if it's just about self-preservation and escaping before worse things can happen. Because the kind of enjoyable part about this film is the fact that we're shown, hey, all these people realize the danger that they're in. They all understand that there's something not right about this house. They just don't have the option to get out of this house. And I love that because usually in stories with this, it takes a while to get these uh, get characters acclimated and on the idea of you need to get the hell out of here. This is bad for you. Like it's going to end terribly for everybody if you're not gone. And I love the fact that that's such a small part of the story itself. Everybody already believes. Everybody knows they have to get the hell out of Rose Red to survive. And there are some jumps in this as well, too. Um, Rose Red doesn't go as overboard as some of uh, King's other adaptations that have been done. They're very sensible about the choices that they make. And it is still a made-for-TV miniseries, so there's budgetary concerns with it as well in terms of like the special effects and what they can show in terms of the actual hauntings. But I feel that making the choice to approach the terrors of Rose Red more realistically allowed them to tell a much better story and set up much better scares because these characters are all presented as everyday kind of people. And that makes them far more relatable. And that's, again, something really, really great about Stephen King's stories is that 
usually we're dealing with a lot of everymen, people that we've seen and we have known in our lives numerous times before. So it's not really taking us out of our comfortability or like, oh, this person, nobody I would ever know in my life. Like we know all of these people. We've met one or two of them and probably friends with them right now. And I think that made it much easier to connect to the story. Now, what does think though, is that while we do get a good exits for some of these characters, other characters are kind of thrown away without us ever getting a chance to revisit that. And I kept thinking, at least with two specific characters, and I know we're over our 10-year rule, but I don't really want to spoil it because it really is a great story, but there were at least two characters in this uh, miniseries who did die uh, that we didn't really get to follow up on that later. It's just like, oh, they're dead. Whereas the other characters who died, who in my opinion didn't seem that important to the story, got like this big mourning and there's anger and we have responses to it. Whereas other characters, we don't really get that. So I did feel some of the pacing in terms of deaths in this series was off, but that's also something really well that they did is that King was able to write a story that really did sell the danger of what was going on because sometimes, especially in a made-for-TV series, we might not actually get uh, we, we might not get a story that really has stakes to it. And Rose Red absolutely had stakes to it, to where multiple people die over the course of this tale. Now, it also gets really bloody in certain points to the extent of a TV audience in the early 2000s. Um, but King didn't pull any punches, and for this being a project that he actually wrote. This is one of his better adaptations that have come out because it's not based on a book. This is something that Stephen King wrote himself and then it ended up getting shelved because of the adaptations of things like The Haunting and House on Haunted Hill. So it's a really cool piece of history to think that if you go back and watch it, you can find a lot of similarities with, again, I mentioned The Haunting and, ha and House on Haunted Hill, but there are very much similarities to other films like that that came out at the time. And this is Stephen King's own version of that kind of tale. Now, in terms of like where I would still rank it, like for miniseries wise, it definitely, in my opinion, fares better than the It miniseries. I enjoy the Tim, Cur uh, Tim Curry old school It miniseries for sure. But if you look at it uh, without the lens of nostalgia, it's not exactly the best tale that's out there. I think the first film did a much better job telling that entire story. Um, it's better than the Langoliers. I, I enjoy the Langoliers, but that's low tier Stephen King there for sure. And there's a lot of other miniseries, obviously, that I'm not naming here as well. Y'all know for me, The Stand is always going to be at the top. The Stand is always going to be number one. But this definitely gets close for sure definitely gets close and something y'all are going to want to check out had to buy it on dvd because i needed the authentic experience there are many ways out there for you to get it but you're going to want to check out stephen king's rose red yeah so folks we got a chance to talk some movie news we got a chance to talk one new one in dash cam and we still took it back old school by talking about stephen king's rose red as well but here's the deal we are getting closer and closer to our all-nighter, y'all. Make sure you're going back and you're voting on what other movies you want to add to the lineup. We got some great stuff in there right now. You can find the post. I'll relink it in the Facebook group. And, of course, come back next week. We're back to old week, y'all. We're continuing our study of the Alien series. We're finally back to it. We're going to be looking at Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, the last two films of the main series before we start getting into the prequels and spinoffs. So, you don't want to miss that. Make sure you're back next week for Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. But that's going to do it for me tonight, folks. My name is T. We've been talking scary movies. Stay scary.